The sermon text this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, as we continue through our series through the epistle to the Philippians. Chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As we consider the example of Christ's humility this morning, as we see in verse 8, Paul tells us that Christ humbled himself. As we consider this example of humility that we find in Christ, you know, we need to begin with a correct understanding of what humility actually is. I want to ask you uh, this morning, what do you first think about when you hear the word humility? C.S. Lewis, he pointed out that many people think that humility means having a low opinion of oneself, that uh, to be humble means to uh, go around putting yourself down in front of other people, telling everyone how terrible uh, you think you are. It's something like Eeyore from uh, Winnie the Pooh. It's that kind of attitude that many people interpret as um, humility. C.S. Lewis said that some people think humility means uh, pretty women trying to believe that they are ugly and clever men trying to believe that they are fools. But we know that that is not humility, especially according to the Bible. Humility is actually defined, according to Scripture, it's defined by self-forgetfulness and not by self-abasement. It's not by putting yourself down in front of others and even uh, before yourself. A humble person is a person who, who thinks less about himself and more about others, who spends less time thinking about himself and more about others. C.S. Lewis went on to say that rather than uh, pretty women trying to believe that they're ugly and clever men trying to believe that they're fools, God would rather the man thought himself a great architect or a great poet and then forgot about it uh, than that he should spend much time and pains trying to think of himself a bad one. So you see, friends, it's this kind of self-forgetfulness. It's this kind of unselfishness that describes humility according to Scripture. This is what the Apostle Paul gets at in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. This was our passage last week where Paul teaches us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so, you know, for our church, for grace, To be a loving, united body of believers, 
we need to have this attitude of humility. Each of us, not looking to his or her own interests, but more to the interests of others in the church, to each member in our uh, covenant family and the needs that each member has. So we see in the passage this morning, first, the need for humility among church members, as the Apostle Paul writes in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, when the Apostle Paul says here, have this mind among yourselves, it's important that we see that he's addressing the whole church. He's not addressing just you and me in our personal lives, but he's saying for you as a church, for us as the people of God, we are to have this mind together. And so what is the mind that he is referring to? Well, this verse actually connects back to uh, verse 2 in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul said that as a church, we as members, we should think the same thing. We know that there he was referring to our doctrinal convictions, right? What we believe about God. And as I noted last week about verse 2, you know, this is one of the blessings of us being a confessional church, that we confess our faith together regularly doing, during worship. Like this morning, we confessed our faith from the Heidelberg Catechism. And we, we did that together with one voice so that we show forth how united we are in what we believe, that we have the same mind. And now Paul is using the same idea of, of unity with one another and what we believe. And what he's doing is he's connecting it to our unity with Christ and his own attitude. We are to have the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ that we have been given by the grace of the Holy Spirit. He's calling us as a church to, yes, believe the same thing doctrinally, but as we'll see, we are now together to adopt Christ's own mindset in humbly serving one another, in humbling ourselves so that others might be exalted. You know, in some ways, we might say as we look at verse 5 that uh, Paul is talking about the need for both our minds and our hearts to be involved in seeking unity and seeking peace uh, in the church. Because we know, we know that there are churches in which uh, members agree doctrinally, uh, but they're at each other's throats. Why is that? That's because they lack a true, heartfelt love for one another. Right? There's no humility present. And this is why Paul now points us to Christ. He lifts our gaze up to the Lord Jesus, and he's going to show us, loved ones, that just as Christ was willing to humble himself in order to serve others, to serve you and me, we are to have that same attitude. We must follow his example of humble service to others in our church. And, you know, as we consider the example of Christ... One of the difficulties is uh, when we talk about the example of Christ and patter, pat, uh, patterning our life after Christ is that it can sound like we believe that Christ was only 
a good example. Um, you know, some people talk about uh, Mother Teresa or, or Princess Diana in this way, that they look at, at these uh, women and they say that they were very virtuous human beings. And so, hey, they were great examples and we should all strive to follow after their example. But, you know, as we consider that, that's not what Paul is getting at here. Yes, Christ is our example, but we need to understand, loved ones, that he is first and foremost our Savior. He is first and foremost our Lord. He is the one who died for our sins. He is the one who sent the Holy Spirit, who has regenerated us, turned our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. We have been given new life. We have been given the mind of Christ so that we now desire what is holy, righteous, and good. And now, after having received this newness of life, we now are to follow the example of our Lord and Savior. We're to do it in that order, to see it in that order, that we might say it was redemption first by Christ's blood, and then regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and now what? Now imitation, now following after Christ, not by our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as believers, as those united to Christ and regenerated by the Spirit, we are now to seek conformity to Christ, to be like Christ, especially we read here in his example of humility, of looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And Paul now in verses 6 through 8 describes how Christ humbled himself. And, you know, what we see in these verses is rich, glorious theology. This is actually one of the most wonderful passages in Scripture as it describes the stages or or the steps of how Christ humbled himself. And so even as we are going to consider these verses this morning, I want to encourage you to read and reread this passage this afternoon and, and this week and to meditate on the richness of what we are now about to study. You know, one of my chores as a kid was that I had to uh, mow the lawn. And uh, we had an old mower and very thick grass. And sometimes if the grass was very big, if I had neglected that chore uh, for a while, I'd have to go over the grass twice because I wouldn't be able to get it all in uh, the first pass. And so, you know, why do I bring that up? Well, to encourage you to go over this text again, because you and I certainly will not get it all the first time. This is rich. This is glorious theology that we are about to embark on. So as we consider our second point, the greatest example of humility. Verse 6, Paul begins by describing the height from which Christ humbled himself. We read, who though he was in the form of God. And Paul is describing here Christ's pre-existent status as the second person of the Trinity in heaven before his incarnation, before he became a man. 
You know, Paul here, he is, in a sense, pulling us out of time and space, and he's inviting us to look into eternity past, and he's showing us that when we speak of Christ's pre-existence, what we are speaking of is his pre-incarnation. We are referring to his eternal existence before he became a man, before his incarnation, before he veiled himself in our flesh. This is what Jesus was referring to when he prayed in John chapter 17, verse 5. He said, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What's Jesus referring to there? He's referring to his pre-incarnate glory, his pre-incarnate existence. It was that glory that he had where he was equal with the Father and the Spirit, our triune God worshipped by the angels and all the host of heaven. And so here at the beginning of verse 6, Paul uses this word, though, as we see, though he was in the form of God, he uses this word to indicate that Christ did something unexpected, something surprising considering his great status as the second person of the Trinity. You know, it's like us saying, uh, though that man is a billionaire, he lives in a small apartment, right? It's unexpected. It's, it's surprising for a person with so much money uh, to live so simply. And that's what this passage is, is helping us understand, that though Christ was in the form of God, he did something surprising. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a man. This word form refers to uh, the outward appearance of something. As we look at something with our eyes, we make out what its form is, and by understanding its form, its outer form, we understand its existence. We understand its essence. It's like us uh, looking at a laptop computer. We see the form, and so its outward appearance uh, lets us understand a bit about what, it's, what it is in its essence. Right? We understand that it's a laptop computer because of its form. And so when Paul says that Christ was in the form of God, he is referring to the glory that Christ had in his pre-incarnate existence. Again, remember John 17, verse 5, that prayer of Jesus. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, Paul is showing us that before his incarnation, Christ was in the form of God. His glory revealed his true nature, that he was truly God. He wasn't less God than the Father. He wasn't less God than the Spirit. No, his form revealed his true essence, that he was truly God. And loved ones, this is where the shock of the passage comes in. We read that though Christ was in the form of God, though he was truly God, he took the form of a servant, we see in verse 7. He became 
truly human. So human, as you saw in Isaiah, that when people looked upon Christ after his incarnation, what did they see? A human person. He was so human that his family didn't believe that he was the Messiah. He was uh, so human that people passed him on the street and didn't pay any attention to him. He was so human that he was a true person with a true body and a reasonable soul. I want to point out again at verse 7 where it says that Christ took on the form of a servant. Did you notice that it's that same word again, form? See, Paul is showing us that Christ, who was truly God because he was in the form of God, he became truly human because he took on the form of a human, not just in his outward appearance, but he became truly human in every way, yet without sin. Think again about the illustration of the laptop, right? We, we see its outer form, and so we know what it does. We know what it is. We know what it is in its true nature. And so it is with Christ in his incarnation. Right? He wasn't just a man on the outside, but he was truly human in every way. He took human form. He was fully God and fully man. And so, loved ones, now after showing us the height from which Christ humbled himself, now Paul takes us down to the depths to which Christ humbled himself. From the glory of his pre-incarnate existence, as we'll see step by step toward obedient suffering and death. And notice that throughout these verses, as we will see in verses 6 through 8, throughout these verses, Paul emphasizes that Christ willingly, voluntarily humbled himself. We need to understand, loved ones, that he wasn't forced into it. Verse 8 says that he humbled himself. This is what Jesus is getting at in John chapter 10, verse 17, where he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge have I received from my Father. What Jesus is referring to there in John and what Paul is pointing out in our verses this morning is that uh, Jesus was pointing out the covenant of redemption between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is an agreement between the three persons of our triune God that took place before creation. It's an agreement in which the Father chose a people for salvation. And then he promised them to the Son if the Son would fulfill all the necessary requirements for their salvation. And then the Son voluntarily, willingly, agreed to fulfill all of the conditions or the requirements to save his people. And the Holy Spirit voluntarily agreed to apply the work of the Son to the elect. As we have noted time and time again, this is a Trinitarian work when we refer to our salvation. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all involved in saving a people for his 
glory. And loved ones, this is why Paul writes that Christ, we see in verse 6, Philippians chapter 2, Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You know, what Paul is pointing out there is that though the Son is equal in power and glory with God the Father and God the Spirit, he didn't use his status as a reason to uh, try to avoid serving others. He, he didn't cling to his pre-incarnate glory, that glory that he spoke of in John chapter 17, verse 5, that we, we read. He didn't cling to his pre-incarnate glory in the form of God, but he willingly humbled himself to serve others, to serve his people, to serve you, and to serve me. That word grasped in verse 6, notice it. It means, it means to use one's status for selfish reasons, for personal advantage. You know, an example of this might be a, a rich man who uh, uses his status and his wealth to avoid being drafted into the military and fighting in a war. This is where we see, loved ones, the loving, selfless attitude of Christ, the humble attitude of Christ. He did not use his status as the second person of the Trinity to excuse himself from humble service to his people. But we read instead that he willingly emptied himself. And he emptied himself not by laying aside his deity. He emptied himself not by subtracting any of his divine attributes, but he emptied himself by addition, by adding to himself a true human nature. He veiled himself in flesh. It's what we refer to as the incarnation, that the one who was truly God became truly man so that he was fully God and fully man. And loved ones, we sing this wonderful theology regularly. You know, our, our hymn of the month, God of Grace. I don't know if you caught it in the second stanza. It says, God of Grace who loved and knew me long before the world began, sent my Savior down from heaven, perfect God and perfect man. We sing this glorious theology. We sing, and can it be that I should gain at the beginning of the service? And again, in the third stanza, we read that Christ humbled himself, so great his love, and bled for all his chosen race. Tis mercy all. What wonder, what glory. And we will sing at the end of the service, Man of Sorrows, as our hymn of thanksgiving. First stanza we know is, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is our response to this glorious doctrine of the incarnation, of Christ's humble service to you and to me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. See, loved ones, he took our humanity in order to redeem humanity, to redeem 
a people for himself. As we look at the remainder of verse 7, Paul explains how how Christ redeemed us. Look at verse 7. We see first that Christ redeemed us by becoming a servant. By taking, we read, the form of a servant. Now, in saying that Christ took the form of a servant, you know, Paul is alluding here to the suffering servant passage that we read from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. It's that Old Testament passage that we read this morning. It's in that passage that the Lord promised Israel that he will send a servant to redeem his people and that this servant will accomplish the redemption of his people by willingly offering himself as a sacrifice for their sins, by humbling himself in order that others might be saved. Isaiah writes, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, upon this servant, was placed the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes or with his wounds, we are healed. So Christ took the form of a servant. Secondly, we see that he became a man. Paul continues in Philippians 2 and verse 7, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, why is this significant? Well, we know, loved ones, that it was man who first sinned against God. It was Adam who broke the covenant with God. And so it would have to be a man who would bear the curse of sin, the punishment of sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we know that's the proto-evangelion, right? The first gospel. That there in the garden after the fall into sin and the curse upon all creation, God promised Adam and Eve that in the midst of that devastation, in the midst of that curse, God promised that one would be born who would crush the head of Satan, even as he himself would suffer in accomplishing this victory. And so, in the fullness of time, the Apostle Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. In Galatians chapter 4, we read, sent forth his Son, born of a woman, fully man, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Christ came as a servant. He he came as a man. Thirdly, he came in obedience. He came in obedience. Verse 8 of Philippians 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. What Paul is pointing out here is that Christ fully obeyed all that the Father required of him. Remember, Adam failed to obey. Israel failed to obey. You and I fail to obey. And so this is why it's so important that Christ obeyed. He obeyed in every way. We refer to his active obedience the fact that Christ obediently kept the law all of his life perfectly in order to fulfill it on 
behalf of his people, on behalf of you and me. And we also speak of his passive obedience, not only that he actively fulfilled the law, actively obeyed everything that the Father required, but that Christ also suffered the curse of the law for our sins. He suffered the punishment for our sins. And we know, loved ones, that the sufferings of Christ uh, weren't merely the pains of crucifixion in those final few hours of his life, but his whole life, his whole life was a life of suffering. The Lord Jesus became a servant in a sin-cursed world. He suffered the assaults of Satan and his temptation. Uh, He suffered from persecution at the hands of the religious leaders, at the hands of, of Rome. He suffered by a life of poverty. He suffered from anguish in his soul, sorrow, and grief. We see that so vividly in the Garden of Gethsemane. He suffered hunger and thirst. He suffered by having one of his disciples betray him. He he suffered knowing that Peter would deny him three times. But we know, loved ones, that his greatest suffering came when he endured the wrath of God on the cross for the sins of his people. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 37, asks, what do you understand by the words he suffered? The answer the catechism gives is that Christ, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in his body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of his people. That so by his passion, as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. And lastly, we see in this passage in Philippians 2 that he became obedient, and he became obedient to the point of death on a cross. Death on a cross. Why? the cross? Why mention that here? Why wasn't Christ uh, shot with arrows or, or, or burned or stoned to death? Why the cross, loved ones? Well, in God's providence, God ordained that his son would die on a Roman cross to fulfill prophecy from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. We know that the Jews considered crucifixion to be a form of hanging and And those who were hung were said to be cursed by God. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 21, there God commanded Israel saying that if someone has committed a crime worthy of death and is executed and uh, hung on a tree, the body must not remain hanging from the tree overnight. You must bury the body that same day. For anyone who is hung is cursed in the sight of God. So that Christ, as he hung on that cross, loved ones, everyone who saw him knew that he was cursed by God. We know that he was cursed by God because he was bearing the curse for our sin in order, loved ones, to bring us to God. Such glorious theology. Such wonderful theology, loved 
But it's also, as we see, it's very practical. Because Paul says, you and I are now to draw our understanding of church life, of our relationship together, we're to draw our understanding from Christ's example of humility. So the question is, what does this look like in our church? What does it look like for us to, sit, to have the same mind as was in Christ, to uh, have the same humble attitude as Christ did? Loved ones, it means willing, joyful service to others in our church. It means following Christ's example of humble service to others. It's summed up again in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Loved ones, it means that you and I are to be like Christ, are to be like Christ who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he willingly, voluntarily made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant to serve others. Jesus displayed this humble servant role when he washed his disciples' feet in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verses 12 through 15, we read, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. You know, we read these words and we ask, what does this mean? Does this mean that we need to institute a third sacrament whereby we literally wash one another's feet? Is that what Jesus is getting at? Well, not at all, loved ones. What Jesus is talking about here is humility. And, and he's talking about the need for us as church members to take servant roles toward one another. Jesus is saying, you know, if, if I, your master, your Lord, have taken the servant role. You should serve one another with the same attitude, looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, and I want to encourage all of us to pray for this attitude to increase in our church, that God will work in each of our hearts by his Holy Spirit so that we might understand more and more, the depths of Christ's willing humility and and have that same attitude work in each of our hearts by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to pray also regularly that God would reveal to each of us how we might serve one another, how each of us might put the interests of others in the church ahead of our own. You know, we have each been given gifts and graces to be used in the building up of our church, of of this church here. And so, because we have each been given unique gifts and graces, uh, our service 
to the body of Christ might look a little bit different for each of us. For some of us, humility might look like uh, volunteering to help with VBS next year, or perhaps teaching children's Sunday school, or uh, visiting a church member who is sick and, and hasn't been at church for a while. Loved ones, in, in these instances, and there are so many more examples, in these instances what we are doing is we are putting the interests of others ahead of our own. And you know what we are doing is we are following the example of our Savior. Our Savior who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for Christ who was condemned in our place. We thank you for his obedience to your covenant requirements. And Lord, we thank you for our church and for the spirit of unity that exists among us. We earnestly pray that you would grant each of us a deeper sense of what Christ did in his service to us and help us as we seek to follow his example of humility. Lord, give us eyes to see the needs of other church members. Grant us um, discernment to see how we might each work to bless one another and serve one another in our church. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.